X's for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out Cage Club at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody and welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the many adventures of comics marvelous mutants through their many titles each week. I'm Nico and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And today we sort of have an accidental special for you. We were covering X-Men Legends number 3 by Louise Simonson, seeing the return to her classic X-Factor stories. And simultaneously, one of our rooms was discussing favorite female-led stories and Wheezy Simonson's work on X-Men came up over and over and we decided there would be no better way to pay tribute to Louise Simonson than giving her pretty much her own episode. So, for many people, they recognize Louise Simonson as the writer of New Mutants and X-Factor in the 1980s. Basically everything that Chris Claremont wasn't doing in X-Men, Louise Simonson had her hands in, and she did an incredible job crafting a narrative that supported a female perspective, a woman's perspective, which in comics was so rare at the time. Of course, her X-Factor would go on to become legendary, as inclusion in legends would indicate. But more than that, it became the basis for so many stories that many writers even refer to now. What's a little strange, though, is that currently, her X-Factor is in no way collected in Marvel omnibus form directly. In the course of this episode, you're going to hear a little bit about the origins of X-Factor as a title, and how it transformed to be Louise's book. But a little something that we didn't talk about too much is that the series itself is not really properly collected in omnibus form. While frequently, annuals find themselves in collections, whether they're based on artists or other characters with whom X-Factor interacted, X-Factor doesn't see a large chunk of material collected outside of some of the larger Marvel crossover omnibus editions. In X-Men Mutant Massacre, you can get X-Factors number 9 through 17. In X-Men Inferno Prologue, you can get 27 to 32. In X-Men Inferno, 33 to 40. You can also get X-Factor 63 to 70 in the X-Men by Chris Claremont and Jim Lee Volume 2, but it is of note that that is the point at which Louise Simonson had departed the title. X-Factor by Peter David will be coming out later this year, which will see the inclusion of issues 70 to 92, or the Peter David run, the first significant run of time that followed Louise's tenure. So it can be a little frustrating to try and get your hands on those stories if you're looking for it in one of those nice, big, bright hardcovers. But if you're looking to just get those stories collected in some physical form, there are a few Marvel Ultimate collections for X-Factor where you can get your hands on that material. If you're looking for specifically the Louise Simonson eras, volumes 1 and 3, Genesis and Apocalypse, as well as Angel of Death, are available. Just a quick reminder, the Marvel Epic collections are not released in order, but rather by perceived demand, and there's a perceived demand for those issues a little bit more than the stuff on either side of it, which does mean that some stuff's a little bit harder to get your hands on, and there are some gaps in the collection, but if you pick up these trades, you should be able to get issues 1 through 9, as well as 21 through 36. For many people, the original five X-Men can be kind of a mystery. That's sort of how did they go from being little kids to young adults when these other X-Men came in and then weren't these guys like trapped on Krakoa for a while? Trying to decode and parse the complexities of the original five can be difficult. So I do recommend taking a look at Louise Simonson's amazing work on these characters over in X-Factor. Of course, as mentioned, she also did amazing work on New Mutants, which we've already detailed has been collected kind of oddly in a way that seemingly avoids her work on the title. It is also of note that in the course of this episode, we mention X-Factor Forever. The Forever line was a series of books where Marvel gave classic writers an opportunity to return to the pages of their stories. Now, this pretty much went to just Chris Claremont and Louise Simonson, where Chris Claremont did X-Men and New Mutants Forever, and Louise Simonson got to do a miniseries X-Factor Forever, returning to this sort of crazy, apocalypse-is-like, evil, maniacal kind of era, and... It was just a lot of fun to get to see one of the most classic writers of X-Men return to the pages that she made spectacular. And all of this to say, Louise Simonson, we are a huge fan as a team, and we are individually huge fans having grown up reading your work. And so much of what we talk about in this episode is only possible because of the beautiful work you did and gave us over the course of the last 40 years. 
So in this first segment, myself, along with original series creators, Kyle and Jonah, reunite to talk about some of the classic stories that we were taking a look at when this whole series began two and a half years ago. Many people might not realize that Excess for Podcasts began as a much more one-on-one discussion before it evolved into a roundtable. So it was a pleasure to bring back the two people that helped me kick this series off to discuss a return that I was so glad to see happen. Whether it's having to explain to Jonah who baby Christopher is, or it's trying to make sense of the Celestials winding up in X-Factor, this next segment was a lot of fun to record, and we hope you guys enjoy. Hey everybody, Nico here one more time, and as I mentioned, we just get along so well as a group. Sometimes we just like to have these little off-topic topics, these little off-topic talks, and I had asked Josh, Arturo, Drew, and Evelyn to talk a little bit about their favorite female-led or centric X-Men or Marvel stories at large. Why? Because it's not just about the X-Books that came out, we're always discussing the things that have influenced us and shape our understandings of these more recent titles. So when it became clear that so many of them loved Louise Simonson and recognized that X-Men could not be what it is today without her guidance, it just sort of made sense to wrap it all up into one big episode. Of course, there is a lot of love for Emma Frost in this next segment, as well as Kate Pride, and a ton of suggestions for incredible X-Runs and Marvel runs you might want to check out. And while you're checking those out, don't forget to give us a subscribe over on on YouTube, Patreon, and Twitter, so you can stay up to date with everything going on in Excess for Podcast. We love making this show for you twice a week, every week. So drop us a review over on Apple Podcasts, and let everybody know how much you love us. Everybody enjoy this next segment. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. I've been Nico Action, and until next time, we'll see ya. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. Now that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. I'm Kyle. You can find me on Twitter, Twitch, and Instagram at Drantis82. It's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience just like one Mr. Hodge when his head got ripped off by a Mr. Apocalypse, who I don't like the design of it this early on. And now he's in this giant robot. Okay, number one, let's talk about the fact that you just called him Mr. Apocalypse, which is the greatest thing I've ever heard. But that's number one. (laughs) Number two, the thing I really want to say more than anything is this X-Men Legends experiment has definitely been something else. Now, I know that we all kind of had varying mileage on that first story, whether you thought the Shi'ar, Corsair, Adam X thing was a little too, you know, everybody got mind wiped at the end, I wish I did, or you thought that it was exciting to go back to this time. Marvel has spent a lot of the last 20 years trying to figure out ways to dial back into their glory days, because don't get me wrong, Marvel has probably never been more successful than they are right now, but there is some question as to how they've accomplished that. So before we go a step further into the amazing world of Wheezy, you know, those of you who have been listening a long time know I am obsessed with Louise Simonson, so this is like the greatest day ever, but I want to know, how do you guys feel about these tales bringing us back into eras that you might have read some of, you know, might have not read any of? Kyle, I know you've got some gaps in your reading. Does this X-Factor tale fall into one of your gaps? Uh, yes. I mean... Kind of. So with X Factor, when I was reading, pretty much the only stuff that was available was the uh, the crossovers. So I read X Factor's part of Inferno. I didn't have any access to the rest of X Factor. <laughs> so I mean, coming coming to this story, I was like, okay, I kind of understand where things are, but I have absolutely no idea what's going on. And, you know, it's such a testament to the state of sort of collection and collecting that I can't help but notice that Wheezy Simonson, one of perhaps only a handful of women who were really given the opportunity to thrive at Marvel in the 1980s, it would pretty much be Wheezy Simonson and Anne Nascenti. Of course, you had some incredible, brilliant background players who never received the attention, like a June Brigham or a Marie Severin. 
but oh or glennis ween how can i even for one second erase glennis ween terrible thing to do so you know when you think about women at marvel in the 1980s i look at my shelves and i have pretty much every x-men omnibus ever made i can't help but notice wheezy simonson's x-factor is not in an omnibus Okay, I can't help but notice that Wheezy Simonson's New Mutants is not listed as coming out in either of the New Mutants Omnibus. I also noticed that Anne Nascenti's Daredevil is like the only major classic Daredevil uncollected. So whether this is a delineation along female lines, like, you know, like, oh, we're not going to reprint work by women writers, and, you know, putting a little bit more emphasis on male work, or it is just happenstance, you're not the only person I know who says this particular batch of X Factor outside of the one epic collection that's available is pretty off limits. Jonah, I know we didn't get quite as far as I would have liked to before the show just sort of hox pox bagoshed itself into the present. You know, we pulled a, a Nathan Dayspring and we time slid to the future. How do you feel dialing into an era that you sort of skipped or missed by virtue of the way publishing goes? I'm kind of appreciative to have these stories of things that I've never read before. Not that they're not there for me to read, but I know that a lot of these stories are trying to fill in the gap and trying to, in a way, correct and retcon some continuity issues or problems that may have arisen because there's just so much X history I think this was their chance to say, okay, we need to clear a little bit up of what maybe happened in this moment because we didn't spend enough time there when we were there. And so I appreciate that in looking at it through the lens of, okay, we need a moment to kind of get everything all together for us. And I hope that it means that, you know, we're going to be either be seeing these plot lines arise very soon or that they're going to have effects that we're seeing today. You know, you said a magical phrase that I I love that you dialed into. It's one of those situations where if you're not really familiar with the material, it can be a little tricky. Now, one of the things that I know is that X Factor as an idea is a little confusing for fans. What exactly is X Factor? You know, you hear that X Factor is the original mutants, you know, the original five reunited but then there's all this stuff about how peter david's x-factor stars the like sort of interim x-men out of nowhere plus quicksilver of course so let me break down for you this era because in many ways i agree with you jonah we didn't get enough of this time when x-factor began it was bob layton now a little background on bob layton and the entire what exactly is x-factor thing chris claremont was asked to create a second x book and he pitched like X-Men West and they were like, nah, that's okay. So then he pitched a second X-Book and he was like, little kids. And they were like, yes, we're here, the New Mutants. And so now New Mutants is approaching issue like, I don't know, 20-something, 30-something. And they say it's time to do another X-Title. You know, Dazzler was never the success she was meant to be. And she was more of a mutant book than an X-Book anyway. So it's, you know, not exactly the line that we know it to be yet. So Claremont comes in and he goes, all right, I got an idea for you. And they're like, okay, what is it? And he goes, the original five. And they say, no. And he's like, but Gene, I'll bring Gene back. And they're like, no. And he's like, okay, what about the original five minus Gene plus Dazzler? And Marvel's like, no, she just bombed her own book. No. Okay. He says, original five minus Gene plus Madeline. And the X offices say, no, you think, you know what, we think there's no room for the original five right now. So the answer is no. And Chris Claremont says, okay. And then two weeks later, he hears that Marvel reached out to Bob Layton to ask him to do an original five book that would return Gene from the dead. Woof. This was not what Chris Claremont wanted, which is perhaps why we got so many of the confusing levels of retcon that start X Factor off. Because X-Factor starts off so rocky between a Fantastic Four and Avengers two-part crossover, it isn't very long before Bob Layton feels the stress of trying to manage what is the third ever major X-title, yet the first one not to be helmed by Chris Claremont during this age of great X, right? So in the fifth issue of the series with a story by Bob Layton with art by Jackson Juice and Joe Rubenstein, we get a sort of co-written a little bit Louise Simonson, a little bit Bob Layton sort of hybrid, and the story doesn't quite gel together. But by issue six, Louise Simonson takes over the title. 
Now, Louise Simonson would go on to write X Factor for an incredible amount of time. While Chris Claremont would occasionally stop by and fill in as needed, Louise Simonson would write X Factor from issue 6 to issue 64. Wow. Yeah, for real. At issue 63, as part of the Age of Artists, Marvel informed Louise Simonson, as they informed Chris Claremont, that the penciler would begin having co-plotting duties. Now, that is necessary. All comic book storytelling should be emerging of writing and art. So, I stand by that. But the way it was done pushed Louise Simonson out. She would ultimately quit the title with issue 64, Chris Claremont coming into script and help the story created by Wills Portacio and Jim Lee, which ultimately sees the resolution of a number of her plot lines. Okay, all that's said and done. Now you have a crash course in the wheezy era of X-Factor. There's a few more things that are necessary to understand about the great era of 80s crossovers for the X-Men. It seemed like there was one every couple of weeks, and they always dominated the story for the year to follow. For instance, Mutant Massacre picks up somewhere around issues 8 to 10 of X-Factor. Those stories would go on to set the tone for X-Factor until roughly X-Factor 22, when it became the Fall of the Mutants, which then set the stage for everything up through roughly issue 38, when it became Inferno. Inferno then turned into the Judgment War in the 40s or so, and X-Factor found itself kind of relegated to an off-world story for an incredibly long time. But that awesome story did also see the inclusion of Walt Simonson, Louise Simonson's husband, best known for making Thor amazing. <sighs> okay. <clears throat> this issue sees Wheezy and Walter reunite on the sort of classic era of X-Factor. Of course, while Judgment War is one of the most significant stories in X-Factor history, seeing the inclusion of the Celestials and a rebonding of the Classic Five, Judgment War also did sort of segment X-Factor out. And after that, there really wasn't quite a classic X-Factor vibe ever again. You started to see the tumult of the changing tides at Marvel. So here we are, revisiting sort of the last glory days of X-Factor. And, um, guys, I love this cartoonishly evil apocalypse. I love that he is like the Blondie and Dagwood to Apocalypse from Hoxpox's Game of Thrones iteration. Like, he's just like, I'm so old, the hate flows through me. <laughs> and everybody's just like, yeah, and you're blue. Yeah, that's that's a really good way of, of describing him. I, I love that, that description. <laughs> he's just so silly and evil, and yeah. that really works for me. Yeah, it's it's like he's... He he's a classic comic villain or a classic cartoon villain in comic form. I yeah, absolutely. He's you know, he's dastardly and muttly. I don't yes. know why every episode of X's for Podcast for the last six months I have made a wacky races reference. But I wacky just races about is about to say that he looks like he'd be trying to sabotage wacky races so he can win. Yeah, and that fucking ridiculous body he gives Cameron Hodge, which oh is okay. So the nineteen eighties were about a lot of things, but they were not about function over form the 1980s were about form over function and if you want to understand what i mean by that take a look at how they used to try to sell sunglasses in the 1980s it would be a woman with hair feathered up to god in sort of a miami vice kind of color scheme like laid over it and she'd have like sketching done on her face to make it look artistic and the sunglasses would be in her hand and completely covered in shadow And that would be how they sold you sunglasses in the 1980s. I bring this up because the biggest thing about the 1980s in comics was does it look cool? That is so central to so much of what would happen as comics would evolve. Think about Spider-Man, right? Spider-Man is sleek, skinny. He's a hero. So in the 1970s, they buffed him out a little bit because he grew up. Okay. In the 1980s, when he got the black suit, the black suit stayed pretty pretty tight to his body. He was still a pretty slim guy. So when they wanted to make a more extreme Spider-Man, they created Venom, who is Spider-Man inflated. By the time the 90s came around, this idea of bigger batter wasn't enough 
So Carnage has a little bit more body horror to him. His tentacles are a little bit more disturbingly used. It's less about brute force, and it's a little bit more about functionality. His symbiote is a weapon instead of turning him into a weapon, right? So this apocalypse kind of straddles that line, and this Cameron Hodge body is everything I needed because he basically looks like a giant Mecha Baba Yaga hut, and at any point his chicken legs are just going to start kicking out from underneath the hut. And I'm obsessed. I'm just obsessed. How did you guys feel about dialing back into an era where the X-Men are hated and feared by humans, Apocalypse is out to destroy mutants for some reason, and uh, Beast doesn't suck? Oh, oh, um, it's it's kind of a temporal whiplash. (laughs) I forgot that Beast was actually kind of interesting back then. He's still kind of just his usual self that we were used to and i enjoyed it i this this whole the whole book it it kind of felt humorous to me actually and it it made me laugh on multiple occasions something that i wouldn't normally expect from something coming from today's original five Yeah, for sure. I really get that. There was a levity to this that kind of reminded you you were in a silly comic. It didn't take itself too seriously for as dramatic and dark as it was trying to explore. And that was always one of Wheezy's strengths. She always had a great sense of humor. Now, in talking about that temporal whiplash, though, how did you feel about the art? I think Walt Simonson, for a guy who's got to be in his 60s or 70s, is still drawing like he is some hot new artist. I thought the art here was fucking incredible. And maybe that was Laura Martin's colors really shining, but I think that Simonson hasn't lost a beat. How did you guys feel about the art? My uh, quick favorite thing is that in the credits, he's listed as arting. (laughs) I think that's just perfection. Already, you're starting off on a beautiful high note by saying the artist is arting. My favorite thing about the arting is that it has what I think is a very interesting blend of the super bright coloration of older comics with the much more modern approach to art and the more um, dynamic expressions and the more lining and there's a lot more detail in more modern comic art that I really appreciate. So I really liked seeing that blend between the two and it was something that I think really helped enhance this story can i ask a quick question while i have the mic who the fuck is baby christopher that's cable isn't his name nathaniel okay so well (laughs) let's let's play download the baby so so scott's horrible and uh scott decides to marry this woman that's clearly a clone of gene and everybody's like oh my god she looks exactly like her nothing can be up here So that's a little weird. So he marries Madeline and uh, he um, forgets to put his ruby quartz condom on that night and lets go an optic blast that results in a baby. And so then Madeline is like, oh man, I'm going to have this baby that Jean gets to be the mom to. That's weird. So Madeline is like, all right, I'm going to have this baby. And Madeline has this baby and they named the baby Christopher after Corsair, Christopher Summers. Okay, well, they send the baby to the future because otherwise the baby's going to die, right? And while the baby is being raised in the future, he gets named Nathaniel. So he is Nathaniel Christopher Ascani Sun Summers. Oh, okay. You see, you've told me all of that before. I don't know if the detail that his, you know, Madeline government given name uh, was Christopher. <laughs> Has ever leaked out? Yeah. Yeah, uh... I don't know if... <laughs> I don't know if that Nathaniel Christopher Ascani Sun Summers. It's a terrible name to put on your driver's uh, license. It is a well, huge he's jumble. Clearly, too young to drive right now, so I don't think that's a problem. Well, that's the thing. This baby had powers like out of the womb, so like that's that's definitely a thing here. This baby was somehow like for people that are like, "Ugh, man, what is Shogo doing there with all of his dragon powers?" Okay. This kid was the original Shogo going gone, okay? He was so every single page of every single issue for so long. And I am personally glad to see that, as silly as it sounds, like we have too much cable right now. I'm a huge cable fan, but we have too much cable right now. 
And it's kind of in that regard that perhaps we've seen more iterations of Cable than almost any other character at this point. We have original child Cable. We have kid Cable. We have adult Cable. We have a thousand time displaced Cables in the interim. We have Exiles Cables. We have Strife. We have X-Man. We have so many iterations of this one fucking guy that it it does get to be a little overwhelming. I understand how you didn't make the connection right away. Also, I mean, you didn't know. But I also see how you didn't go, oh, it's a baby. It must be, it must be Cable. Like it, it, like, it registered in my brain of like, well, the actual child that I know that they we've seen be born that is technically part gene part Scott, and I'm saying it that way specifically, was Cable. I just didn't think he'd be on the ship. And like it didn't like it didn't register in my head like, oh that that's cable. No, that was just a baby named Christopher that they some for some reason had. And you know, that's a thing the bit the X-Men do do. Sometimes they are just like, we got a baby. It's like modern family. Sometimes people just live with Cam and Mitch, and you just gotta be okay with it. Right? Sometimes there's just a baby with the X-Men. But that is kind of a standard thing that the X-Men like to do. They do like to have someone young and small who is a charge that needs to be watched after. It's a common trope that Chris Claremont and and Louise Simonson, one of his contemporaries, likes to go to. And speaking of alternate iterations of characters, how did you guys feel about dialing back into straight Iceman? Not that Iceman had any dialogue. <laughs> it's weird. I'm so used to current Iceman that this older but younger but straighter-ish Iceman is... It's just weird, you know? It's very weird. Early on, Bobby wasn't ever really... Not that I've even read a lot of the very extreme beginnings of the X-Men, but even from the original five, Bobby was never really one that like stood out to me. He was never, in my opinion, a very serious character, so it was hard to take him serious. And here, he kind of just, you know, fades in the background in more ways than one, because I don't think Bobby had a real discernible personality at this point in comics. Like, the last I left off at Bobby, he was at college and drinking beer. That's literally all he did. That's right. I'm sure he was an economic student, because that's literally what Bobby would do. He'd be business major. No offense to any business majors out there. I'm just calling it like I see it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely see that. And... Yeah, he he definitely didn't feel like there was a lot of energy spent on him in this story. Um, just, I mean, he did have that that minor little event where he threw up the the super thick ice wall near the end as things were exploding. But still, I mean, he he barely spoke. It was it was mostly Warren, Scott, Gene, and kind of Hank. Hank was there, but Hank is much more palatable at this point in comics, so you can forgive a lot when it comes to Hank, which might sound like a bias, which it is, but when you compare the two of Hank and Bobby, which, oh my god, over the hell, Hank and Bobby. (laughs) Dang it, Bobby. Um, (laughs) uh, Now I'm gonna... (laughs) Now, okay... uh, Whoever would like to message me, I will commission somebody to draw the X-Men in the art style of King of the Hill, where um, Hank McCoy is Hank and someone draws Bobby as Bobby. And um, I would think, I think Jean would be Luann. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah, she would. She would. (laughs) To my my point. um, I think it's, uh, when it comes to the two, Beast is a lot more enjoyable to read because he takes the trope of being someone not serious and being playful like we see with him juggling and doing you know acrobatic tricks with Christopher it's a lot more enjoyable to watch someone do that as opposed to Bobby who is there like Bobby's supposed to be a jokester and supposed to be a prank like you know this kind of not so serious making puns and kind of thing is what I've been told he was like but it's really hard to fit that in the story when you're trying to 
have this Warren dealing with apocalypse and Gene and Scott worrying about a baby. Right. And also with Gene having three personalities stuck inside of her head. That was interesting. Trademark. Yeah, that was a thing at that to- point in time. I remember that. Which, if I love Madeline Pryor, I do, and I would love to start the hashtag justice for Madeline Pryor, but I think it's, in terms of if this is how Marvel was going to treat her in the first place, I almost wish that she was just, you know, a clone that just got absorbed into Gene and then that was it. Like, I just feel bad. And I agree. I think part of the problem is Marvel never knew what they were doing with her. In the 1980s, Chris Claremont had this rule. He would write everything about mm, 50 issues ahead. So at issue 100, he had a vague idea of the plot all the way through issue 150. At, however, at issue 100, he had a pretty strong command of the exact plots of issues 101 to 125. So he liked to plan in 50 issue increments and have 25 issues ready to go mentally. So you can sort of see as, as time plays out how he maybe didn't really know where some of this was going to go. Issue 175, Madeline and Scott get married at issue 200. Scott leaves the X-Men. Of course, that wasn't Claremont's choice. Like we said earlier, he lost Scott to X-Factor. So the plans for Madeline did get all screwy, and she was treated pretty poorly. And, you know, thinking about Jean as somebody with multiple personalities, both literally and figuratively, I don't know that there was a whole lot of personality in this issue. Um, Like, not in an insulting way to Louise Simonson. But I don't think this issue was about creating personality context. Scott sort of got classic Scott 80s personality. Stoic, jumps in, yells, big chest, and that's his personality. Gene got Gene's personality in the 1980s, which is, I have been mistreated for so long, this is my time to reclaim me, which was a big part of her personality for a decade. Scott, not Scott, Bobby, Warren... Hank, you know, at any given point, they've all been sort of misused in the comics. Here we got to see pretty harmless Iceman and pretty harmless Hank. Both of them didn't get too dramatic till the runs that would follow this. In so many ways, Warren is sort of the original edgelord, where he's like, I'm so dark and blue. (sighs) And I feel like we could have gotten a lot of shit from that here. This could have been a really boring issue because of Warren. Being like, you know, my darkness, my darkness, my pain, my pain. Instead, I found him harmless. Like, I've always thought the fact that his blue eyelid, blue eyelids, his blue eyebrows kind of, Jesus Christ. I've always thought that his yellow eyebrows kind of look like they're a little bit in his costume and not exactly on his face, right? So that's if that's the most annoying thing about Warren in this issue, that's a pretty great issue, all things considered. Warren is a tough character to make likable and especially when you can't himbo it up. So, you know, this was the first non-himbo angel in quite some time, and it turned out pretty okay. How did you guys feel about being reminded of just where some of these X-Men were? Like Apocalypse, big bad evil guy, and Warren, I'm so edgy, to now, where Warren is like literally King Himbo, and Apocalypse, after ending an interdimensional war, went to go retire with his family. It shows a great amount of character growth, I think. Um, these these characters have changed so much over these years that you really can't s- it, it, it does they don't feel like I, I wouldn't say that they're they're not the same people anymore, but they have grown so much that they have improved. Yeah. 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 Improved is really a great way to look at it. There's nothing wrong with the interpretation of these characters from the 1980s. Certainly not. That's what made us such big fans today. But those interpretations occasionally were necessarily two dimensional by virtue of the limitations of 22 pages and popularization of the format. You know, this issue, I was afraid, would be no, no, you know, nothing against X Men Legends 1 or 2. They were way too dialogue heavy for my modern sensibility. I enjoyed them but i did feel like every page was a lot to read and that's not what i'm in for i'm not here to feel bogged down in my reading i'm here to feel excited about the page and i felt like this did manage to blend that sort of amount of words and amount of art 
and it, it can't hurt that they're a married couple. You know, it can't hurt that they're a married couple that worked on this book 40 years ago and are working on it again now. So did I say it can't hurt or it can't help? Uh, Good, because that's what I meant. So Jonah, how do you feel about the changes in characterization and even the narrative voice perspective? Because I've been changed for the better, because I knew you, I have been changed for good. That's what I feel like a lot of the X-Men are always about. Or always... any of them have been changed for the blue. Or the red. Or the dark. The needlessly dark, replaced by their own twin, a really cool lady version of themselves. There's not enough women in the X-Men to replace with male versions. So that's why it never goes the other way. No. <laughs> um, I, I am someone who can always re- appreciate a return to form of looking at where a character got their start and how they originally were envisioned and how they originally were written and acted versus where they are now. So I don't mind it too much. I think this is probably the most palatable Hank will ever be. And, you know, that's unfortunate, but that's just the way the character's going. And that's what the direction that the Marvel and X Arfus wants to go with. Um, I will say that my opinion of Bobby has gotten a lot better because I enjoy Bobby now than I did not enjoy him previously. And I still don't care for Warren. Even after finding out that his wings were ripped off and Apocalypse basically suited him with everything and brainwashed him, I still don't care. Yeah, and I feel bad about it. I still don't care. Like, uh, I have this very specific memory. A friend of mine and I were talking about Sons of Anarchy at one point because I'll watch pretty much anything Katie Seagal does. I'll, I'll watch it because I'm I'm passionately in love with Katie Seagal, right? And that makes a lot of sense for me. So we watched Sons of Anarchy, and there's a scene in which a character realizes that their child is better off in someone else's custody, and they have to come to terms with who they are and let their child go. And a friend of mine who, I guess for lack of a better way to put it, not just statistically represents the character, straight white males in their early 30s at the time, like so many things about it, but actually kind of fucking looked like him. Like it was hard not to see that he related with this character. And he said to me, yeah, what did that scene? I was like, that's actually what made me quit the show. That was it. I was done. I know that was just one too many false opportunities to care, to care anymore. And he was like, no, that had to tear you up inside. How didn't that gut wrench you? And I was like, because this guy is a homicidal maniac who does things like stabs junkies full of heroin and says, if you ever cross me again, I will absolutely break every chance you ever have at sobriety. I will continuously stab you full of needles with heroin so that you can never be clean for the rest of your life. I don't want this guy having a kid at all. <laughs> like, So it didn't gut wrench me in any meaningful way that a horrible person had to come to terms with not getting everything they fucking want. That's actually how I feel about Angel in the 1980s. He's, for all of the ways, he's a freak. He's the 1960s version of a freak. He's, oh my god, Elizabeth Taylor, what's wrong with your face? Your eyes are too beautiful. Like, his wings are literally gorgeous. There's nothing to feel bad for him over. He is a billionaire who, you know, tragic, yes. Everything that happens with his parents, super tragic. He seems to be okay pretty quickly, and there isn't a lot of reason for me to give Angel my sympathy. Even when his wings are ripped off, he just sort of gets, No! There's nothing now! Which, not the best way to show someone dealing with amputation or a disability, right? But it was the 80s. We didn't know better. And, yeah, there is nothing that makes me feel bad for Warren. Kind was, of that, was that before or after Candy died? Well before. Okay. Candy died as a result of wanting to torture Warren more. Right. As all girlfriends do in Marvel, unfortunately. So I find myself... Actually, the only girlfriend of an ex-character that I know of who didn't die to torture who they were with was Colleen Wing. Colleen Wing was already a well-established character before she became Cyclops' girlfriend. It really is like... There are so few who have boyfriends don't get abducted. Boyfriends are always looking for their X-Man girlfriend. It's just girlfriends who get abducted, and it's really quite a problem. Um, and children. But children are Iliana gets kidnapped a lot. But children are abducted at and like I mean and I know you're making a joke, but like for real, to have a, a thing on the show that I, we need to talk about, children get abducted gender-wise in equal ratio. Your daughter is abducted as much as your son. There is actually no there is nothing in comics that says little girls are vastly inferior to little boys. 
but there is a lot in comics that literally says adult women are vastly inferior to adult men. And it really is symptomatic of an industry that wasn't interested in taking an entire group of people seriously. And that is one of the things that was never even necessarily one of the female writer's faults. But think about how much Wheezy Simonson, as a female writer who had been an editor in the 1980s, had to fight this uphill battle against editorial that knew that men sold better. And when I think about the fact that she was a woman writing a core team of five and was only allowed to have one woman on her team, that's ridiculous. Sure, the exterminators would join later with Rusty, Skids, Boom Boom, and Richter, but that's not the same thing as having another full-fledged woman on the team because, again, that's three out of 10 characters were women. That's not very much for a woman writer in the 1980s for a medium that relies on the depiction of women to sell books. And I, I want to just bring up another point. Uh, I think you bring an excellent point. I mean, look at, you know, when Chris Claremont took over, there was Storm, and then you had Jean for a little bit, and then Jean died, and then how many issues did it take for Rogue to become Kitty, a Oh, well, Kitty. Never mind. But, no, but Kitty is explicitly, explicitly the replacement for Jean, as if they were only allowed one woman other than Storm at a time. It was Storm and Jean, and they were best friends. And then it was Storm and Kitty, and they were mother-daughter. And then... Kitty kind of gets sidelined because she gets injured and, well, no, Kitty gets sidelined to deal with the divorce of her parents and Rogue steps up. Then Storm loses her powers and then Kitty gets injured and her powers are fucked up. There was really a strong vibe for a very long time, even on the main X book, that you could only have so many strong women before you were possibly muddying the water. And that is ridiculous because, as we've seen, the X-Men can nowadays survive whole titles on just female characters. But the men, teams of all men, I don't see too much. Oh, maybe you can fill me in. So what I know of Caliban is that he's a Morlock. Is this the same Caliban? What's he doing with Apocalypse? Yes, yes. Was this after uh, Apocalypse made him one of his horsemen? This is what leads to it. Leads to it, okay. Is this before or after the Mutant Massacre? So the Mutant Massacre occurs, and Caliban is like, no, all my people, so bad, hurt, no, no, sad. And then the Fall of the Mutants occurs, and... Apocalypse is like, look, I will make Newton strong. Look at what I've done to Archangel. Now he's Archangel instead of being Angel. And he's not dead, which is pretty cool. And the X-Factor team is like, no! And Apocalypse is like, yes? And Caliban is like, no, I'm for yes. And they're like, but no, Caliban, you're you're for no. And he's like, no, I'm for yes. And they're like, oh, that's not good. And he's like, well, I'm tired of being kicked around and my people always being killed, so... I'm going to go from being one of the weak and slaughtered to being one who does the slaughtering. And for a while, he was still sort of that kind of Nosferatu peepers looking motherfucker, right? And then they just did the 90s thing and they just made him humongous and gave him fangs and claws. And, you know, they just they just archangeled him up. He just basically became a white bony looking saber tooth. Now, here's what I was going to say. With the way he was drawn in the poses, I thought it was a real sick and pale toad. Yeah, that, that was what I thought originally, too. And then once once, um, once he said his name, then I was like, oh, okay, this is Caliban. Okay, this puts, this puts me into a better frame of mind of where things are. And that is something that the Marvel books have actually always sought to a little bit explore. When Steve Rogers becomes the super soldier, it's with a tested formula that is sure will not have psychological effects and change him. Steve's quest for power is in the name of protecting others. Steve does not look for power, but rather looks for a way to embody the shield. Caliban says, there's a way to get strong and powerful and use it to hurt people who have hurt me. I'm in. And it's sort of in that way, though, that you couldn't even place that it was Caliban. Characters who show that sort of cowardice, which we just saw in the Falcon and Winter Soldier. Characters who illustrate cowardice and find an easy way out to become stronger are reduced to very little in terms of the bigger narrative because it's kind of like a bomb. Caliban was used explosively. They took this small meek guy, turned him into a weapon, but then that purpose came to an end. And that was the end of the character. 
So it doesn't shock me that you found a character that was used in a manipulative way that fit the story, not, you know, not a ding on anybody, kind of forgettable in the grand scheme of history and didn't recognize him at the time because that's not the sort of story that we see make characters last. No, Caliban's whole thing was, I want to marry Kitty. I'm going to do this in the worst way possible. I'm so sad. He's kind of like the hunchback in Notre Dame, but yes. like not as likable. Yes, yes, very yes. A complete agree. And instead of living in a bell tower, which, great drag name, he actually just lives in the sewers. Uh, yeah, bell tower in the sewers is my favorite drag queen. And I find myself very excited about issue number two, actually. Because issue number one was a lot of great personality setup, but didn't really give me the payoff of the excitement of the issue. So I'm going into issue two, or X-Men Legends number four, ready for a little bit more of this, knowing that it's kind of going to be a short tale, whether it stops with issue four, five, six. I'm not signing up for 20 more years of X-Factor. Just like when they did X-Factor Forever, a brief five-issue miniseries in the style of X-Men Forever, which was a special project allowing Chris Claremont to continue his original X-Men run in an all-new volume, they also gave Chris Claremont New Mutants Forever, and then later we received X-Factor Forever. And so Wheezy has already returned to these characters before in a contained, likable, brief sort of form. And that's what we're seeing again here. I know I just want to see this team come together and give me some classic 05 feels for the conclusion of this story. Is there anything you guys are looking for from this next issue in particular? I mean, because I don't really have that kind of attachment to the X-Factor team, I, I kind of struggle to feel like there's something that I need out of the next issue. So you're um, just in for the fun. I'm in for the fun, which, to be honest, I was not expecting. Um, after I had read uh, X-Men Legends issue one, I was like, I'm not reading any more of this book. And then I saw that uh, the Simonsons were on this, and I was like, okay, I'll give it a try. And I was happy. So as long as as long as it's it gives me this this enjoyment again, then I'll be happy again. How about you, Jojo? What are you looking for from another issue of? X-Men Legends by the Simonsons. Beautiful art, a great fight sequence, and for Scott to go, Jean! Yeah, if I could get Scott to shout her name, her to faint and then come back more powerful for absolutely no reason with two pages left to go, if Angel could be temporarily hindered by moral dilemma, if Iceman can be like, no, now I'm going to really show off and then get knocked down, and if Hank could just do something real hanging upside down Z, I think we'll have hit every single trope you need to have an issue of X-Factor. So, so, so wait, if Jean comes back from fainting even more powerful, are we talking like full on summoning the Phoenix again, like she did in this issue? Um, you know, it's always some vague version of it, but yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. Sort of, oh, look, I've tapped into something I didn't even remember I had a sixth personality. This Oops. one's named Johnny. Johnny, what do you want to do? I want to use my mind powers. I'm going to cut this and I'm going to hit stop. <laughs> Hey everybody, Nico here one more time, and as I mentioned, we just get along so well as a group. Sometimes we just like to have these little off-topic talks, and I had asked Josh, Arturo, Drew, and Evelyn to talk a little bit about their favorite female-led or centric X-Men or Marvel stories at large. Why? Because it's not just about the X-Books that came out, we're always discussing the things that have influenced us and shape our understandings of these more recent titles. So, when it became clear that so many of them loved Louise Simonson and recognized that X-Men could not be what it is today without her guidance, it just sort of made sense to wrap it all up into one big episode. Of course, there is a lot of love for Emma Frost in this next segment, as well as Kate Pride, and a ton of suggestions for incredible X-Runs and Marvel runs you might want to check out. And while you're checking those out, don't forget to give us a subscribe over on YouTube, Patreon, and Twitter, so you can stay up to date with everything going on in X's for Podcast. We love making this show for you twice a week, every week. So drop us a review over on Apple Podcasts and let everybody know how much you love us. Everybody enjoy this next segment. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. I've been Nico Action, and until next time, 
We'll see you. So in addition to our coverage, we're also going to talk about great female Marvel stories. So we want to talk about, you know, we've each kind of put some thought into this. What is one of your favorite female letter, female driven Marvel stories? Uh, doesn't have to be X-Men that you wanted to talk about or give some give some shout out to this week. I have two because I couldn't decide which one I loved more. So the first one is Kitty, Pride, and Wolverine because that to me is such an iconic story where Kitty Pride or Kate Pride now, who is such in the modern age, she is such a well-developed character. She is a leader. She is a favorite of people, even though I hate Josh Whedon with a passion. He's right. She's the best. And um, I hope he never touches her, but I do love her. Um, but before, but a lot of people may not know before like this storyline, she was just kind of there. She was this, um, she was meant to, she was introduced as like this 14 year old character who is just silly and like your average like 80s 70s 70s 80s teen like just kind of like hopping around loving the mall everything she happened to be a child genius but they didn't really like utilize it and then you come to this storyline where she goes through so much she gets possessed by a demon she like literally in her mind they restart her as if she has been this demon's daughter since birth and she literally lives this whole life in her mind of this she's torn apart she's tortured and but and Wolverine becomes comes and helps her because he noticed his, she's missing and Wolverine helps her to break away from that and to come to terms with the torment that she went through and that's like the start of Wolverine being a mentor to her as well as her becoming a more well-developed character and a more serious character um she's not just like this silly teen girl anymore she's she's older she's more mature she has gone through things and that to me is just such an iconic story that is slept on um sorry I get passionate about that um but the other one I really wanted to mention is I really want to mention I want to get the issue number right so it's shortly after the Avengers annual number 10 where this is Rogue's it's about Rogue this is her first introduction to the X-Men this is the storyline where she has just absorbed Carol Danvers who was Miss Marvel at the time and is now Captain Marvel and she absorbed her powers and her psyche and she doesn't know what to do she's so scared of her own powers of her own abilities of this crazy thing in her mind and she just she goes to the X-Men she doesn't know where else to turn so she goes to the X-Men she goes to Xavier she meets Wolverine and they are very wary of her but in a strange twist of fate they accept her and help her where the people that she thought she could trust didn't so she thought the X-Men were going to be just like the villains and be just kind of like coy and like just a little like eh. but they end up being very welcoming to her even if wary and they help her and they she starts to earn their trust and I think this is such a great storyline because as some listeners may not know she started out as a villain like she just started out as a villain and this is like a great story where she is able to develop herself to better herself she realizes the things she was doing was not the right way to go about things and she still has this moral code but she's able to develop it further where she can actually help more people and I just I love this whole story of her development so both of these stories rogue and kate some of my favorite characters to me these are the most iconic stories that really define who these characters become in the modern age wow great picks evelyn thank you for that and i i i mean you can't go wrong with either of those stories i also love everything that we got as a result after that rogue story in terms of rogue mystique rogue mystique like mom daughter stories are some of my favorite uh little bottle issues um that wouldn't have been possible very without. interesting yeah it's a it's kind of another thing i want to see more we're getting a lot of that like gene cable rachel cyclops kind of family dynamic but to explore like other family dynamics like the rogue nightcrawler mystique kind of family dynamic would be interesting too and oh yeah like we got mystique screaming like give me back my give me back my wife yeah! and we we like we need rogue to be around for that to be like yeah like how come you haven't brought my other mama back <laughs> Where's my mama? Yeah, yeah. So on that, Drew, 
what was your story? Favorite female-led Marvel story? I think mine is probably going to have to be Emma Frost's storyline in uh, the Morrison run. I think even just Emma Frost as a character. I've been thinking about her like a lot lately. I like to take like other kinds of like forms of media and stuff. That's how I relate to characters. Like to me, Emma Frost is very much like Meryl Streep in the Devil Wears Prada. Um, I'm actually kind of working on this thing. I'm going to call it like X-Tape Mondays or something. And I want to make playlists for all these characters. And I have like, I have an Emma Frost one half prepped. Um, And just like kind of like songs that like, you know, like she would vibe to, you know, and like about her life. I don't know. I just think she's like a fierce, like she's like a drag queen. Like she's like, again, the whole scalpel situation. Like she is like precise and, and um, a kind of another thing that I kind of wanted to talk about is it wasn't really like a character, but um, I'm reading X Factor right now. The, like the original run, um, which is like written by Louise Simonson and like just giving her a shout out on, you know, basically everything she's done because she's an icon. Wheezy is uh, the ex-Twitter collective grandma and we all love her. And if you don't get out of ex-Twitter, that's not even a controversial take. Yeah. <laughs> Arturo, what's your pick for female-driven Marvel story? Okay, well, I'm furious that Drew went before me and took that answer because, and I have the notes, I was totally going to go off on an Emma tangent. I'm um, sorry because I didn't, if you want to, if you want to say your thing, no. I will no, 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 no. I thought of it on the top of my head. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm, I'm going to just keep Emma Frost deserves to get mentioned twice. All the coverage, yeah. It, like, I'm sorry, just like, as a gay man, you can't say, like, I like and like a drag race fan, like, Emma Frost is literally, like, She's my life. everything. She's everything. And as a queer woman, Emma Frost is my life. <laughs> All right, so my answer is also Emma Frost. Thank you for stealing my thunder there, Drew. Um, I just absolutely love this character with all my heart and soul. Like, I am such a sucker for a good villain redemption story. Um, I know that we get, you know, villains redeemed every week now in the era of Krakoa, and I love that so much. But Emma is one of those OGs that really her entire character development and trajectory changed so radically and it was such a hard sell and it was so hard for 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 x-men fans to buy into right away nobody trusted her that was both on panel and off panel um but it her redemption has been so well earned and you know i love that for all of her tough and villainous ways or whatever at her core she has always been focused on protecting the mutant children and the next generation and helping them be better than she is as a person helping them inherit a better world than the one she's had to survive like i just love all the complexities of emma frost so much i love that um you know even when she was back in her hellfire days and running around in in a corset and panties uh, you know, there's that that famous like Claremont panel where Emma explains that you know she does this, she wears this because it ha- it, it empowers her. It's not because she's a sex object. It's because she's the one in control. I love her the 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 complexity of her look, but don't you dare touch kind of weaponized sexuality. She's just such an incredible character, and uh, I was heartbroken when when they were taking her back towards you know villainy quote unquote um after inhumans versus x-men and just the fallout of that we don't talk about that i you know i know that didn't happen i don't know what you're talking about (laughs) i I know i know we've all repressed those memories and and we just you know try not to try not to worry about it too much but i hated that with all my heart um and i love that during the x-men black series leah williams stepped in and and did a lot of work for emma that was needed at that time for the character and and seeing her now on Krakoa um, is just, it, it, it's, she's just such a delight to see her evolve as a character. And she's a okay, powerhouse. No one, no one will protect Emma like Leah Williams. But, but I agree. And damn good job of it. Dugan is, now, uh, shout out to oh, Dugan, Dugan for writing the most incredible Emma Frost character I think a cis straight man could possibly do. It, it, it defies belief. 
So I'll tell you, and I'm gonna I'm gonna step in here for all of us '90s children. You know, born 1984. So my first Emma, right? My really kind of coming to terms with Emma was in the um, Uncanny X-Men leading into Phalanx Covenant Generation X, where we get early Frost, the issue where we see her really break and acknowledge, you know, like the kind of comes to term where the X-Men begin to trust her. Then Generation X, where she was the mama and the teacher, like everyone knew, like don't fuck with her. She's got a nasty streak. She can drop a body, but she was the caretaker. She was entrusted with all of, you know, my Generation X babies for that whole time. You know, the the young group that I grew up with. So my baseline, Emma, is hero, mama, teacher. And I know that she had a Hellfire Club past, but then bringing that baseline into it, going back and rereading all the Claremont stuff. Yeah, I mean, she's more villainous, I would say, in the um, 152 to 154 run um, where they kidnap Kitty of Uncanny. But in New Mutants, I would never say she's villainous. Mm-hmm. Her entire New Mutants run, she is she is the teacher of another school. Um, she it's cares like about her kids. Principal. Yeah, they are the they are not the bad guys. They are not the antagonists. They are um, the rival. You know, the Hellions are like they're an alternate team. Like they are, you know, they're competitive against the New Mutants sometimes, but they have mutual respect. They don't fight each other. They're not always at war with each other. The Hellions are not a villain group. They are another group of young heroes that Emma Frost is training and we never see it and it's it's done so well because you know you have all of these magic losing her time control and you know taking them into the future and they see you know new mutant kids dressed up as hellions and they think they've turned to villains because they don't understand what's going on over there and and then you you find out that after the dark trauma of experiencing death and being brought back from the beyonder in Secret Wars 2 that Emma is the one who took Magneto was too emotionally fucked up to help them through that Emma is the one who took them in and offered them counseling and therapy and not that they had to become hellions not that they had to become a member of her school but just because she is mama she is teacher like she cared for those kids that weren't even hers and helped them get over that horrible time and and that's in claremont new mutant that's that's in the 80s there as well like she was for me she was always hero code for me she was always this um just some other people didn't know what now that we have disney plus uh all i really want is is kind of like a Riverdale style show where it's just new mutants versus Hellions in high school. <laughs> Emma Frost, yes. the 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 principal of the rival school. Yeah, it, I mean that's that's very valid. Yeah, like she's she's always been a complex character. Um, you know, it, it's not like yes. taking uh, I was going to say Cassandra Nova and making her a hero, but let's you know let's let's slow down, <laughs> let's slower rules. Yeah, it, but yeah, Emma has always been just an incredibly complex character and. It's you know you gotta you gotta remember there was a long stretch of time when Jean Grey was actually dead when she was gone from comics and Emma really stepped in to that role as being like a premier member of the X Men the the telepathic powerhouse and somebody who would stand toe to toe with any of the Avengers and call them out on all their bullshit like I think of Emma Frost and one of the first things that pops into my head is where were you when our babies were burning when she just called oh, tony stark yes. out on that bullshit oh. was someone on another podcast said it recently but you know um mark millar who you know is is somewhat problematic on his own has written emma frost twice twice he has two scenes that he's ever written in his entire marvel comics career of emma frost and they are both fucking iconic um <laughs> and and that is one of them yeah and uh, you know we, we can't give we don't want to give props to Joss Whedon because he's a garbage human being as about um, as just has been confirmed recently but the Joss Whedon astonishing run did for both Emma and Kitty in terms of solidifying them for that next wave you know Grant Morrison built her in New X-Men and you know built her in for that next generation and then unfortunately Chuck Austin got a hold of her for like five fucking minutes and had her making out with Scott on Jean's grave and he immediately needed rehabilitation again Deep the astonishing run but I'm glad I got to talk about Emma because I did not choose Emma. Um, I I made sure that I chose something that uh, no one else was, there was no chance anyone else was going to bring up. We could have a million people picking their story here and no one else was going to choose Brian Michael Bendis' Age of Ultron. 
So for me, I am a I'm a Fantastic Four fan for reasons that are the exact opposite of why I'm an X-Men fan. I love that the X-Men are the characters who constantly grow and are constantly maturing. They're always in a different place because everything is real and earned and has consequence. Um, the Fantastic Four are the opposite. They rarely ever grow. Every growth is always recycled back. Johnny Storm is a quintessential comic character that always is too immature, has a you know, learning experience and learns to be mature and is validated and then you know, the next writer takes over and Johnny Storm is too immature again. and that's been going on, you know, ad infinitum in 1960. But I love Sue Storm and she is the character that gets the least always. There are so many great Johnny Storm coming of age stories because every Fantastic Four writer has it. There are a million Reed Richards focused Fantastic Four tales because of complexity and the fact that, you know, every middle-aged white male comic writer sees something to do with that patriarchy. There are a bunch of great Ben Grimm stories, um, you know, as the, the the monster who was a man as coming to terms you know, with you know, the family and friends who did this to him or not being able to love. Or, there are far less great suits. Like, part of me would love to see, not part of me, I would love to see Gail Simone take over the Fantastic Four at one point because she is one writer that I know if she was given that family, it would be a Sue-centric run. And for my money, one of the best Sue Storm stories is that second act of Age of Ultron. So Age of Ultron, which is a hot mess of an AU story, story that Brian Michael Bendis did that, you know, Nico loves to point out is where we learned that Emma Frost has the body of uh, a crippled old white man because that book spent so long in development and rewriting and redrawing hell that character was originally Charles Xavier got you know was then killed off in main Marvel continuity and had to be replaced by Emma Frost but they didn't actually replace all the art they just replaced the face so it was Xavier body with Emma face to do a fucking thing that should never have happened in comic um and that's the whole first third the whole first third of the the opening arc of that is a post-apocalyptic dystopian story after Ultron destroyed, you know, Ultron destroyed Marvel. And all of the tie-ins and the other stuff the writers did, it was not tied in well. It was basically already being dismissed as not actually affecting the Marvel Universe, like when the first issue came out. No one else was going to play in that sandbox in their honor. But then we get into the middle arc, which is where Wolverine is sent back in time to try to fix it. And two storms muggles along. And so the entire middle arc of this story is led by two characters going back in time, trying to prevent the Age of Ultron. And it's Logan and Sue Storm. And Sue really gets to shine. Um, it was a, a fantastic kind of story showcase for her, breaking away from the other Fantastic Four, getting to, you know, really hold her own with Logan. Um, and probably the best part of the entire Age of Ultron story. Because then the third act, where you start having all of the we fucked up the timeline shenanigans with Morgana Le Fay. Like, this book went from back and forth sometimes from some of, like, the best issues to just absolute nonsense incomprehensible issue um it the, the quality from issue to issue in terms of writing and art was so hit or miss but that that middle arc with sue and logan is one of my favorites and you know it was really an opportunity to see an under a, a, the first lady of marvel who is been in a million comics and yet somehow is still criminally underutilized and underdeveloped really shine and hold her own um alongside a character that we know is the best there is at what does. And so I want to give props to that because when I was thinking of, you know, female-led, female-shine story, uh, Sue Storm and Age of Ultron kind of came to mind. And I knew ain't no one else was going to talk about Age of Ultron. It's, I mean, God bless you for bringing up Age of Ultron. I had like a visceral reaction when you said Age of Ultron. I was just like, oh, you say hit or miss, but yeah, I guess I I got a few too many of the miss issues because in my head, I just have like a big X over that story. Like, nope, don't like that. That is fair. Have you ever read the the invisible woman solo that came out like last year no but i loved mark wade did that and i love mark wade i love the the font treatment or or whatever the typeface of like i can see it in my head the invisible woman Uh like marquee or whatever of that book was brilliant but i never read it i would say probably my my second favorite solo her breaking out was another mark wade one which was um the issue he did of his shield run he had an anthology shield run that he did when agents of shield first came out that had uh like holes it was basically Colson was the star and it would have some of the TV characters popping in and around like your Fitz and uh, Gemma and stuff um, but it mainly focused on like Colson and his like 
fanboy knowledge of Marvel superheroes, picking, like mm-hmm. we were talking about with X-Force earlier, picking like the perfect hero for some covert op. Um, and there was one where he needed Sue Storm and called her in. And uh, that was another racist bottle issue, Sue Storm. I, I always give, count on Mark Wade bring the goods. I want to give honorable mention to Chip Zardar- Zadarsky for forever changing my perception of Sue Storm. And it's not for the better, to be honest. Uh, but it, <laughs> it, it, the way, uh, the way he portrayed Sue and Reed kind of just felt very right on the nose for me. So that, that's, that's the, that's who I, who pops into my head now when anyone brings up the Fantastic Dan, Four. Dan Slott and current Marvel writers have been carrying the fuck out of her lately, and I am not amused. Mic drop. Not on that note. <laughs> <laughs> so this turned into just an Emma Stan account right now, and I'm not mad about it. <laughs> Let's be fair. X is for podcast is an Emma Stan account. It's really X is for Emma, Emma Frost. It, it, it's X is for Emma Frost and Dazzler. Like those two, like. Ugh, <sighs> as as Nathan would say. My heart. <laughs>